Hey, I'm Holly from Massachusetts. I'm James from Salt Lake City. I'm Jason R. Wallace from America's Georgia in these United States. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Vijay Iyer is a jazz musician. He says composition is a kind of problem-solving exercise for him. He used to study physics and mathematics pretty seriously. He's got an advanced degree. Maybe that's why he's so good at finding elegant solutions in complex structures. It's not a huge part of my life anymore, and yet I'm always getting asked to comment on it, (laughs) as if it is. It's sort of like being asked to talk about your ex, you know, which is a little, um, you know, I'll do it, but it's 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 not the main thing I care about. Or maybe not. Sorry, Vijay. It's Bullseye. This week, Vijay Iyer explores the relationship between music, the mind, and the body. The comedian Dave Hill performs in front of his toughest audience yet. 250. Maximum security violent felons. But it doesn't turn out quite how he expected. And Dimitri Martin shares one of his favorite hobbies. I like people watching, mostly this one woman. (laughs) That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. Every week on the show, I'm joined by one of our favorite culture critics to recommend some culture worth your time. This week, we're joined by our hip-hop expert, Andrew Nas, from the blog Cocaine Blunts. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? Hey, Jesse. So, Andrew, one of the things that I enjoy about your work is that you are respectful of all types of underground hip-hop, including the now somewhat out-of-favor classic definition of underground hip-hop. The first song that you're recommending is... A, by an artist who is a classic in that classic genre, Aesop Rock. It's called Racing Stripes. Yeah, Aesop Rock is a guy who's been doing it for maybe a decade and a half at this point. I think he's one of the better writers in hip-hop. I think that he's got a really unique voice, very dark, very strange. But also, as you can hear on this song, it's kind of fun. There is a bowl cut template mapped with a billy can. I get mom says a ring of Toby every Lego man. Mini ramp cowlick, good ships, not nose. Lap rain water, red and pigeon hill potholes. Rat rain shovel green peas of a butter knife. Raccoon hat boom boots, all summer tight. Belt pressure at the center of the dog show. Better off blending, sweater off Waldo. You wanna see a team now mute? Cut a page boy till it bring home a cute Poof, screw face, rig a letter, chop shop. Homebrew Kool Aid, disavowing Oscar, simulating television. Little the second song uh, you've recommended here, Andrew, is by a guy called Alpoco Don. It's called All I Know. Um, I really don't know anything about Alpoco Don. So tell me, do you know anything about Alpoco Don? Not really. He's from South Carolina. And, you know, this is just one of those videos that popped up on YouTube of a guy on his porch banging out a pen cap beat and rapping really passionately. When you say a pen cap beat, it's a legendary form in hip hop that, you know, some kids at a lunch table would make, which is to say you're you're making a bass drum with your fist on the table and a snare drum with a pen cap on the table. That's correct. 
<laughs> I dip my pen in plasma, write my rhyme in blood. Immortal thug with a grudge, show the world I'm love. I put my gang face on and hit the battlefield. Tattoo one to my eye from gun busting. This shit is real, promise my people. Yeah, soldier, when it's time to ride. Stay in gutter, I love the hustle, ain't no need to lie. Daughter, a real, I grew up to be a gorilla. Head busting, staying thug and act the fool full of striller. My mama told me I'd get killed if I ain't slow my road. Well, mommy, if I slow my road, then I slow my dough. I've been a big dog, I graduated from the poach. No soft ass, just hard head till my casket closed. Hell no, don't want my head bust, no, don't want to die. Yeah, the thing about it is that it highlights the simplicity in making a great rap song, you know, especially now everything is so tied up in production. I think there's been a shift, like if you look at Kanye or all these other guys, and when you get right down to it, all you really need is a table to bang on and rhymes. I know. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye, as always. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Andrew Nas recommends Aesop Rock's Racing Stripes and Alpoco Don's All I Know. You can find Andrew's website online. It's called Cocaine Blunts and Hip Hop Tapes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Vijay Iyer is a leader in contemporary jazz music. He's originally from Rochester, New York, and spent 15 years of his childhood studying classical violin. His college years were just as serious. He earned an undergraduate degree in mathematics and physics from Yale and a master's in physics from Berkeley. Somewhere along the line, though, he found himself drawn to piano improvisation, and by the time he was studying for his Ph.D., he'd switched from physics to an ad hoc program in technology and the arts, studying the relationship between music and the mind and body. His study and playing led him to a simple musical principle. Music is action. His newest album is called Accelerando. It's a mix of original compositions and diverse covers from sources like Duke Ellington, Heatwave, yes, Heatwave, the disco funk group, and the hip-hop experimentalist Flying Lotus. Here he is on one of his original tracks from the album, Optimism. Jay, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. When did you start playing piano? It must have been sometime when I was four or five that I started just messing around on my sister's piano. And that's basically how I learned to play. So little by little, I figured things out. Uh, I think that that early training on violin just helped me because I had an ear for things so I could pick things up a little bit. Um, It was nothing fancy or awesome or anything. I mean, and it had zero guidance. 
Probably a lot of crap, to be honest. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had more recordings of it. So when you were in college and um, getting your master's degree, which were, you know, your as, as I mentioned, your undergraduate degree was math and physics at Yale, and then you got a master's in physics at, um, at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. At what point did it occur to you that maybe what you were really into was playing the piano? <laughs> well, I played piano th- all throughout all of that, and... Uh, when I got to college, I actually started leading a group, writing music, try, uh, setting up my own concerts, getting my friends to show up <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, so, And it was all sort of, you may or may not know this, but if the, the music scene at a place like Yale is dominated by a cappella singing groups. <laughs> <laughs> I do like, know about that. Just a, a friend of mine was recently made an honorary whippin' poof. Yes, indeed. That's the pinnacle, in fact, of, of the singing group culture is the so-called whiff-and-poofs. Um, but, you know, <laughs> they kind of serve the role of frats and sororities, too. They, they're these, like, social organizations as much as they are musical. And so it kind of fills a certain space that and takes up a lot of space in terms of the cultural life on campus. And I don't want to summarily diss all of it, but it wasn't for me. I'll put it that way. <laughs> You know, so I kind of had to create my own path and create my own occasions for doing the music I wanted to do. And so that was, in a way, good training for for being out in the world doing that, you know. I mean, I still didn't know that, oh, this could be my life or something like that. No one, that hadn't dawned on me or I didn't think that it was really an option, you know, because I was checking out a lot of music in New York. And to me, it was just light years ahead of anything I was doing. So I wasn't I wasn't imagining that, oh, that could, you know, Joe Henderson, like that could be me, you know. It was because, I, for one thing, I'd never seen anybody like me in the arts in the United States. And when I say like me, I mean from the South Asian American community. There were none of us out there doing this, doing anything. Then when I moved to um, the Bay Area, right out of college, I went straight to UC Berkeley. I was actually working in a physics lab that summer. I remember at some point I just saw a post, a flyer somewhere for a jazz piano competition. I said, well, you know, I still play piano. I may as well try this. So, and then I won. And that was like the big, the first kind of um, moment of external validation that I'd really uh, experienced, you know? So that was kind of a shock to me. I was like, I didn't really know that uh, anybody else would like it. I guess I'll put it that way. <laughs> and then I started, I became the house pianist in this club in Oakland called the Bird Cage. And I, found, I kind of realized that this music exists in a kind of dialogic space. You're really interacting with the audience. You're communicating. They're answering back to what you're playing. You know, it's actually a, it's very real time. It's not just about what you prepare in the practice room. It's about what's happening now. <laughs> and and it's about people. You know, it's about communication, not just about prowess or something. And then I was I was still pursuing physics, and I was serious about it, and I was really trying to make it my life. You know, I did my best, and I actually I did fine in terms of academics. I got good grades. 
and I found a research advisor pretty early, and I started working on some research problems even in my first year in grad school. Um, and I did that for about a year and a half. While at the same time, at night, I was, you know, was, I was playing in clubs in the Bay Area. I was playing around. I was with all kinds of folks, you know, and it was getting pretty intense on both sides. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the jazz pianist and composer Vijay Iyer. He's known for his complex, pulsing, rhythmic arrangements. He also arranges his own versions of songs by artists like Flying Lotus, Stevie Wonder, and Michael Jackson. The Vijay Iyer Trio's newest album is A Cello Rondo. I read this really wonderful article that you wrote in The Guardian a couple of years ago. And it was it was about the relationship between the mathematics of rhythm and music and, and how it affects us. And um, it used you used as an example uh, a song that you covered on one of your records, which mm-hmm. is this Ronnie Foster song called Mystic Brew. Mm-hmm. Um, or as I think of it, electric relaxation by yeah. a tribe called Quest. That's how you know. That was how I first knew of it. So let's let's take a listen to this uh, Ronnie Foster song. This is sort of a classic soul jazz song from the early 1970s. This article was about how you transform this song in covering it, you know, or that was an example of uh, what this article was about. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about how your cover version differs from the original before we listen to your cover. Sure. I mean, I should say that when I was invited to do that article, I was a little bit weirded out because I... You know, math and physics, that's something I left behind. I stopped really being serious about that in 1994, and it's 2012. That's a long time, you know? So it's not a huge part of my life anymore, and yet I'm always getting asked to comment on it, (laughs) as if it is. It's sort of like being asked to talk about your ex, you know, which is a little, um, you know, I'll do it, but it's 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 not the main thing I care about these so that was basically the case even with that article but uh anyway so what what we ended up doing with this piece uh this was something that actually steve coleman showed me um which is uh these fibonacci numbers if you you know i could i don't know how in depth we should go about this but you know anybody fibonacci sequence is like one one three five you skipped one one already (laughs) oh geez (laughs) one plus one One, one, all you do yeah you take one and one as the first two and then you add each next one in the list is the sum of the previous two all right so then the next one is two and then the one after that is three and then five and then eight and then 13 and then 21 34 55 etc 
And as they, this list of numbers or um, sequence that has a bunch of interesting properties, but one property that I find interesting is that it's there. You know, if you take any pair of numbers in the on the list that are next to each other, and you take the ratio of those two numbers, then you get something that uh, is close to this irrational number called the golden mean. People would probably know it best from posters on the wall of every math classroom yes. in America. <laughs> right, right. You've seen that spiral. Yeah. And that spiral somehow embodies it because the way the numbers grow has something to do with the way everything in the world grows. And I'm not even <laughs> exaggerating. Like You can <laughs> look at the petals of a of a sunflower or the sort of needle number of needles on a pine cone and different ratios and you'll find these numbers you'll find these ratios the same ratio recurring so it's got this there's something about it that has to do with growth that's very um special i think is the word and I'll, i'm not the first person in music to do it i mean i got about i learned about it from steve coleman but i do find it interesting because it scales in this interesting way two of the first numbers in the, on the list, which are three and five, like in the music we just heard, the chords are of those lengths. The first chord is three eighth notes, and the second chord is five eighth notes. And that's a rhythm you hear in a lot of things. And in fact, it has this asymmetry that's characteristically African in origin, and you hear it in a lot of music in the African diaspora, and in a lot of music that's influenced by the African diaspora, which is basically all music in the United States. So... <laughs> So it's kind of a ubiquitous thing. So I just um, tried this experiment where we kind of preserve that uh, relationship of the short and the long, the three and the five, but then kind of kick it up a notch, literally by going up that list. So now instead of three and five, you have five and eight. And that ratio is similar. You know, five divided by three is 1.66 something. And 8 divided by 5 is 1.6, so it's close. It's not exactly the same, but it's close. And what do I mean by close? Well, that's what I wanted to figure out by... Or not figure out. I wanted to experience their closeness musically by creating rhythms that have that closeness. Well, let's hear the Vijay Iyer Trio's version of Mystic Brew. Jay Iyer will talk about rhythm as a social binder. And it's about more than just dancing. Rhythm is the reason that we're able to do anything together. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter, thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Grammy-nominated musician Vijay Iyer. He started playing the violin at the age of three. Then he took a detour into a life of studying math and physics and found himself playing the jazz piano. Now he's interested in the body and brain's interactions with rhythm. 
The Vijay Iyer Trio's newest album is A Cello Rondo. You also wrote a little bit in that piece about the relationship between rhythm and the body. Mm-hmm. That's also something that relates to uh, the work that you ended up doing in your PhD when you left math and physics. Uh-huh. Can you tell me a little bit about um, about that relationship, about the way that um, the rhythms in music uh, reflect physical feelings and have physical resonances for human beings? Yeah, so <clears throat> what I mean what when I left when I decided to leave physics I um was ready to leave academia but then I connected with some people at UC Berkeley who helped me create my own kind of academic environment for studying whatever I wanted <laughs> basically I was very fortunate that uh I wasn't just cast out on the street with a master's degree in physics um and what I ended up doing was um, looking into this field that's called music perception and cognition. Nowadays, you hear the phrase music and the brain kicked around. Um, <clears throat> to me, music isn't just something that happens in the brain. I mean, as somebody who's made music and had this active relationship with music my whole life, it's not just a mental experience of a listener. It's actually a physical experience of a doer, you know, somebody who music is something we do um before it was something that we consumed and stockpiled and downloaded it was actually something that we did together uh that became my dissertation research so i created i would my my advisors and i whipped up this uh ad hoc interdisciplinary program in music and technology or technology and the arts it was called it didn't have a lot of technology or art in it, but it uh, focused on music and uh, cog- perception and cognition. But specifically, I was interested in this thing called embodied cognition and embodied perception and situated cognition. These things that had to do with the real world, understanding that perception and cognition don't happen in a vacuum, but they happen using our bodies and in an environment that is not only physical but cultural as well. So, um, in other words, <clears throat> in other words, they, there are linguists and philosophers and people who study cognition, who what they study is the relationship between, you know, the feelings of our body, the physical experiences that we have, and the way that our thoughts and ideas that we might otherwise think of as being abstract are formed. Yeah, and this was actually, and especially in this time, which was now, by now it's sort of the mid to late 90s, when I was doing this research, um, this was kind of a new idea, this new paradigm of embodied cognition. It was kind of going against the old school ideas about how the mind worked, which was really that the mind was, I mean, like, you know, the sort of most base way to put it is that the brain is some kind of computer that conducts these operations and the neurons and synapses happen to be the medium that it uses, but it could actually be anything. It could be a microchip. It could be a bunch of boxes with cats in them. <laughs> you know, it could be you in a room with a bunch of Chinese symbols <laughs> and a book, you know, so it's, there were a lot of different kind of um, very reductive ways of looking at how the mind worked as if it had nothing to do with everything else that it 
it lives in, which is the body, of course. And of course, we know that the way we learn to do anything, the way we learn how to talk and how we learn how to crawl and walk and eat, is by trial and error. Again, it's like what I said about the piano for me. It's by uh, being immersed in an environment where these things are possible, where you have some options, some constraints. You have a body that does certain things, that can't do certain other things, that has to learn to do certain things. And so everything that we call cognition is bound up with that whole process of learning in a place with your body. And that's that then kind of um, affects every level of cognition. So then when we talk about music, um, we aren't just talking about melodies and chords. We're talking about actions, you know, and those actions have bodily traces associated with them. When you hear, you know, <clears throat> even if you hear, I don't know, like uh, some house music with kick drum on on all four beats that ev immediately evokes some kind of uh, response that's sort of like walking or like, um, you know, marching or dancing in some kind. You know, and this is partly because the body has certain rhythms that are inherent to it, and that's where music came from. In other words, music didn't come to us. It came from us. That's what music is. It's made of things that we can do with our bodies. I mean, you could use that to describe the process of creating jazz just as well as you could uh, what you were describing. It's something that's basically just fundamental about how we make music at all. You know, it's sort of this particular view of it is not genre-specific. You know, when we talk about rhythm in the body, I mean, the way that the brain works when we are perceiving rhythm is that the parts of the brain light up that are involved in moving your body in what's called motor sequence planning. So it's, it's about making limbs move in as a response to some kind of uh, rhythmic activity, but also um, not just in, as a response to it. It's, it's some kind of recognition of it. In a way, your body wants to regenerate that same activity that gave rise to that sound. You know, it's a it's a very uh, it's a kind of empathy is what it is. It's like a it's that kind of resonance that we have in our body with other bodies doing similar things. When we hear somebody doing something, we want to do it too. <laughs> it's like a social binder. Exactly, that's what it is. Rhythm is the reason that we're able to do anything together. I was listening to your cover of Human Nature this morning while I was shaving. As I heard little bits and pieces of um, the recording that I'm, you know, like everyone else on Earth, I'm intimately familiar with. Um, <laughs> right. I realized as I heard these kind of echoes of the original recording in my mind, as I heard your recording, that when you cover Human Nature by Michael Jackson, partly you're dialoguing with that recording, that performance, and how intimately acquainted your audience will be with it, basically no matter who they are. Right. I mean, I think this is something that characterizes the last, I think, half century of pop music. This, uh, you have to start thinking about orchestration and production when you're thinking about these songs. It's not just about a melody and chords. It becomes a, a, as much 
a result of the recording studio and the production process as it does just the simple execution of notes on an instrument, you know. What we're dealing with is some kind of response to the role of this music in our lives. The last thing that I wanted to ask you was you've spent a lot of time considering the relationship between music and the body and considering the relationship between rhythm and the body. And I wonder if you think of yourself as making, um, to speak broadly, listening music or dancing music and uh, why you've made the choices you've made in that dichotomy, if it's fair to say that it's a dichotomy. I don't know if it's a dichotomy because to me, dancing is a mode of listening. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think it's possible to. I mean, there's like there's what's called headphone music or something, music for the <laughs> headphones, or music, which means sort of meant to be cons- consumed in some solitary setting, which is a really strange and new thing in terms of what music has always been to us as people you know because before the advent of recordings music was always a social thing it was always something we did together we experienced it together and we made it together you know or music would circulate as sheet music and then we'd you know the way you would hear it is by playing it so somehow it was part of you um now the fact that we could kind of externalize these things and just sort of have it uh, somehow separate and, and then just kind of a concentrated dose of it um, in some basically in a virtual environment that's a bit of a new reality that we are still getting used to I think but uh, to me I've always found that the uh, most satisfying way to respond to music is a physical response something that makes you move you know music makes you move that's the thing that it does first and i think the thing is that we in the west have had that kind of um beaten out of us (laughs) (laughs) at its best um music can unite the mind and the body and bring us um, back to uh, uh more empowered versions of ourselves that um I like to visit <laughs> as much as I can. Well, Vijay, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Vijay Iyer's most recent album with his trio is called Accelerando.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You may have seen Dimitri Martin on his Comedy Central show, Important Things. He's obsessed with problem-solving and unraveling linguistic ironies. On the show, Martin would make diagrams on a whiteboard and project slides overhead. But recently, he put aside the whiteboard to record an album of dry observations. It's called Stand-Up Comedian. I like people watching, mostly this one woman. Yeah. I'm doing them one at a time. (laughs) From behind bushes and stuff, you know. I think surprise parties are weird because people jump up and they yell the word surprise at the party. I came home to my house and you guys emerged from my furniture. You don't have to tell me how to feel. I don't need like a hint from the group, you know? It's not like if you yell out another feeling, I'm gonna have that one instead. I come home and everybody jumps up. Confidence! Oh, all right, yeah. Damn right, I feel great. (laughs) Gotta spend an hour at the party answering questions like, hey, so were you really confident when we jumped up and yelled out confidence? (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't faking, I had no idea. I was confident, I mean, I came in feeling kind of lousy about myself and I felt, yeah, really self-assured. It's a great confidence party. I'm so glad you guys threw it for me. My friend has hand soap that smells like coconut, which is great, very nice. Unless your hands are dirty from coconuts. Then it's a disaster, it's the worst soap possible. I can't tell if I made any progress in this situation. This is how my hands started out, this sucks. See somebody smelling their hand, I feel like there's never a good story behind that. It just looks negative, you know? If you try to make it look positive, it looks even worse. You see a guy who's like... Let's go talk to that guy. He's pretty happy about whatever he put his hand in. (laughs) No good. If you're on a bus and you want to save that seat next to you, open. People are getting on, just smell your hand as they walk by. How you doing? You want to take a whiff of this? What is this? Is this good? You can sit here, by the way. Is this human? What is this? Dimitri Martin's new album is available now on CD and DVD. It's called Stand Up Comedian. After a break, comedian Dave Hill goes to prison. By choice. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio. International. Have a favorite Bullseye segment? It's easy to share it with your friends. You can find links to our page on SoundCloud at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian Dave Hill. We spoke earlier this year. It's tough to describe what my guest Dave Hill does. Uh, On the back cover of Dave's new memoir, Tasteful Nudes, Ira Glass has a quote that probably does a better job than anything I could come up with. He says that Dave is full of unjustified bravado, but also amazingly vulnerable. Dave has had his own TV show, The King of Miami, in which he and a somewhat homeless-looking sidekick rode around Miami on a scooter, 
pretending to buy real estate. His stage show, The Dave Hill Explosion, is hosted folks like Dick Cavett and Rufus Wainwright at the UCB Theater in New York and elsewhere. And he's done almost all of these amazing things while wearing at least one piece of clothing made from purple velvet. Here he is reporting from New York's Fashion Week for, actually, for my web show, Put This On. What are you guys wearing today? Uh, this is Helmut Lang. Ooh, I was going to guess Helmut Lang. Yeah, uh, Robier. I was going to say, yeah. Merlin Berger. Uh, see, I thought that was Dress Barn. How does my look compare to some of the other looks you've seen today? Yours is probably the best so far. I was, I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah. Everyone's taking pictures of our you shoes. You must be used to this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm incredible from the waist down. <laughs> so do you work in fashion? Yes. Do what? you? Look at me. I am fashion. Do you write about fashion? Sometimes, yes. So you've heard about me, if you write about fashion? No. Pretty much. Wait, what? I'm one of the best manicurists in New York City. Really? Yeah. And what do you think of my nails? Your nails. They're pretty good. You know, and shine them up. Yeah, I get stuff stuck under my nails from shoving my fingers up things. Dave, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm honored. So I knew that you were a rock and roll guy, and I knew that you were in a band, but I didn't know that you were a professional musician before you started doing comedy. And in fact, the the band that you uh, were in out of college was a you know had a had a major label record deal and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, we had like a little micro. Having our rock and roll dreams come true and, and then shattered. But yeah, I had a band I formed with my friends when we were teenagers called Sons of Elvis, which is the best slash worst name for a band ever, <laughs> probably. You still haven't decided on that. I, I go back and forth, you know, because we named it, you know, when we, uh, before we set our sights on global domination, had we known. We would have gone with something like Dawkin or something, you know, <laughs> if we knew we were going to get like a big record deal and be on MTV and all that, which we eventually did, you know, and we, we had a real exciting sort of year and a half. Then as these things go, it kind of, you know, next thing I know, I'm painting houses in Cleveland, driving our, our broken down tour van to people's houses to paint, you know, little girls' bedrooms and things like that. I mean, I talk about this in the book, but I was painting a girl's bedroom while she was away at summer camp, and the mother was like, hey, do you, wanna, do you want a radio to listen to? And I was like, yeah. And she brings in this this boombox or whatever, and it had, had a sticker from my band on it. And it was like, at first, like a crushing blow, because I was like, oh, man, I've really fallen. <laughs> so I was on top for a second. And then I was like, oh, no, this is really cool. She, if she knew I was painting her bedroom, she'd be so pumped right now. <laughs> so I just totally just really painted, you know, extra coat of primer, did the whole thing. Really, really did a nice job in there. Where did comedy come into this? Because you, you, weren't, you weren't like a kid that was doing school plays in school and that kind of thing, right? No, not at all. But I think from playing in bands, you know, after my first band, Sons of Elvis, I formed another band, and I ended up being the singer because we couldn't find anybody else. And I found that I liked talking in between songs just as much as I liked playing the songs. And, like, like if an amp would break, I'd be psyched because I would be like, oh, cool, I can do, like, a tight five while we try to borrow an amp from the other band, you know? 
And like I would just be talking and talking, and the other guys in the band would just be like, "Come on, let's go," you know, because you know we have we got to you know we only have a forty minute set, and I would be happy to talk for twenty minutes of that. And so I think between that and I was I was you know a freelance writer, journalist. I was writing for newspapers and magazines, and and I didn't really care about the reporting part of it, which was really the bulk of it. I I just wanted to get like one or two jokes in the story. And as long as that the jokes made it past the editor, I was thrilled, you know, like two sentences out of 750 words or whatever in a newspaper. So I think between those two things, you know, I eventually ended up in New York. I came here for the weekend in 2003, and I'd never left. I was just here with a duffel bag. Do you remember the first thing that you did that was a comedy thing? When I first started doing live comedy, like a lot of times I would just read something. And my intention was to just read something and hear people, you know, just I wasn't intending it to be a performance, really, but I was genuinely so nervous. And I right away, I realized that people were reacting to all these different things besides what I was saying, you know, like they were reacting to me just being like really nervous or taking a sip of my Coke or whatever. You know, I realized this sort of the first time. And also, like, with comedy, I think, you know, there's a lot of stand-up I love. But I, one thing I really don't generally like is, you know, com- comedians that are like, hey, how's everybody doing? Everyone doing, you know, what's going on? You know, like, really making the audience feel comfortable. Like, I never was an interest of mine to be like, you know, because I was nervous. I was anxious. So I was like, if I'm going to feel awful i'm gonna make sure everyone feels awful (laughs) that's a recipe for successful comedy yeah yeah make everyone have a bad time no but i thought you know i'm not comfortable why well i guess i guess i was like i felt really really nervous really uncomfortable and anxious and everything and i thought it would take so much more energy to try and hide that than to just let it come out however it's going to come out. Hello, and welcome to the Dave Hill Explosion. I apologize in advance for completely blowing your minds. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian Dave Hill. His collection of essays is called Tasteful Nudes and Other Misguided Attempts at Personal Growth and Validation. One of those attempts at personal growth and validation was booking a live comedy show at the legendary prison Sing Sing. We spoke earlier this year. It seems like you've made it your business to throw yourself into emotional discomfort. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Like things like going to prison and stuff like that. You know, prison started off as a joke doing a show in prison and then it ended up being actually like a really powerful experience and like one of the best experiences of my life, maybe, you know, because it was, I think I was like pretty overwhelmed by it. I was like, oh man, like, you know, these guys, like, you know, if you're, I, I just literally thought, you know, if, if you're in prison for life, like, why wouldn't you do something awful to this idiot from Cleveland that's coming in for the afternoon, you know? <laughs> I was like, why Why not, you know? So I kind of got myself really worked up about it. About a week beforehand, I, I genuinely was like, whoa, this is not 
funny at all. This is like a horrible prank I'm playing on myself. Like I have to get out of this. And before, and I was I was gonna just call and cancel, and then I get and they ended up emailing like. They're like, hey, we're just checking in, make sure you're still coming. You know, the guys are really excited to see you. And <laughs> I was just like, oh. And, you know, I was like, oh, what kind of guys? I'm like, oh, it's like 250 maximum security violent felons. You know, and I was just like horrified. And so I went up there and you go there and it's like, you know, it's like walking into the Green Mile or something. It feels like an old timey movie. And I was like an idiot. I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, to the guards, I was like, oh, this is so cool. And they're just looking at me like, gosh, you're an idiot. You know, because it's like <laughs> ultimately, you know, it's a job for them. And I don't think any any corrections officer really wants to be doing that. It's just like a way to take care of your family or whatever, make some money or whatever. And uh, And we go in there. And their guys are, you know, they, there was guys on stage, you know, that were stagehands and helping out. And they there was a an open a house band. They were called like the official house band. I don't know, but they basically it was like inmates who had formed a band. And so it was the band, and then like the stagehands and like the guys that worked the PA, and we're all hanging out. And um, you know, and I think again, like I'm like I have no idea, what, like. Because, you know, you watch, like, Locked Up, Lock Up Raw or whatever, and you think, like, oh, someone's just going to stab me or shank me for fun or whatever. And um, and he was talking, like, I learned, like, some prison lingo. And there's this thing called a fifi, which is, like, a fake vagina they make. It's very elaborate. (laughs) Um, It's made out of, like, a sock and a garbage bag or a rubber glove. And, like, just it's very, like, a long way to go for what you want the end result to be. Um, And so I was asking them stuff, and I was like, is is there really something called a fifi? And they were just like, what did you just say? And I'm like, um, Fifi? And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. These guys are so going to be mad. And they were just like, you guys, get over here. Dave just asked about Fifi's. They're like, how do, how do you know about Fifi's? And I was like, it's on the Internet. I read about it on the Internet. And they're like, what? Are you kidding me? It's on the Internet? I'm like, yeah. Like, because they, they, they're just, and they're like, oh, my God. This is so embarrassing. Our secret's out. Like, people know <laughs> about the Fifi. I'm like, yeah, everyone, it's, if you want to know about it. I mean, there's YouTube videos how to make. And they were just. You know, they don't have the internet there. So they were just fascinated that, you know, that there were like Fifi recipes online and all that. And uh, so that was a bit of an icebreaker (laughs) and talking about that. And um, but I, you know, and then I remember like someone else said, said like, hey, Dave. And I like turned around and then, you know, I turned back to face the guys I had been talking to and I had a total like you know, high anxiety kind of moment because I turned around and like two of the guys had pens out, you know, where they're like facing me with pens and like originally, I'm a, you know, right away, I'm like, oh my God, this is it. They're going to shank me. But then they were like, hey, would you sign the flyer for it? And I was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but um, there were guys, you know, I was there with my guitar. I played some guitar and there was a band and these guys had guitars and they're like checking out my guitars and they it's kind of like talking to just like regular dudes, and a couple of the younger guys were like totally into Upright Citizens Brigade that did you know the Comedy Central show, and they were totally into the fact that that Laura and Carl and I, you know, do stuff there. They were like really, so it was bizarre to be in this place where and knowing you know you're talking to 
these guys who, when there was another thing, um, you know, when there's like 300 of these dudes, originally I was like, oh my God, it's going to be so weird. I'm going to wonder what everyone did. You know, what did this guy do? Did he kill someone? Did he like burn a building down with people in it or whatever? Arson, arson's a big thing with Sing Sing inmates. Um, but when there's 300, you can't, there's no, you can't possibly sit and rack your brain or think about what everyone did. So it just very quickly becomes a bunch of dudes who happen to dress very, very similarly. <laughs> Dave Hill is the author of Tasteful Nudes and Other Misguided Attempts at Personal Growth and Validation. You can find him online at DaveHillOnline.com. Thank you. Dave Hill will be among our guests at Max FunCon East, October 26th through 28th in the Poconos. He'll be in conversation with talk show icon Dick Cavett. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from our host, who is me. It's the outshot. There's a whole world of transracial, transgenre punk rock cover records out there. Remember Alien Ant Farm? Basically, they're just kitsch. Embarrassing. One of them isn't, though. It's an album by the Dirt Bombs called Ultra Glide in Black. Why does it work? Maybe it's because the Dirt Bombs are themselves a mixed-race group and their lead singer, Mick Collins, is black. Maybe they just had enough of that R&B garage in their punk already to overdrive the soul songs into rock jams. The point is that Ultra Glide in Black somehow manages to be a punk rock record and a soul record. Listen to the band tear into this Curtis Mayfield song. They turn an original that was sort of wistful into something much, much fiercer. Here's the thing. There's a lot of love in R&B, a lot of soul-searching, some great parties, not all that much rage. Punk rock, though. Punk rock's great at rage. Mick Collins isn't a soul singer, but he's got the presence to back up some heavy songs. And when the band finds a soul record that has the guts of a punk record, the album soars. Hey! I know it feels to expect to get a best shape, but they won't let you forget that you're the underdog and it's got to be twice as good. Yeah, yeah. Even if you're never right, then get uptight if you get too bright, because you might be thinking too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't recognize that song, it's Sly and the Family Stone's first single, Underdog, from 1967. Sly was an idealist, and he was no stranger to the politics of a mixed-race band. 
He wanted a happy, integrated world. But like the dirt bombs, he wasn't afraid of anger. He wasn't afraid to rage a little. And on Ultra Glide in Black, it's thrilling to hear Mick Collins and company throw some rock and roll passion into the soul stew. That's my upshot. I know how it feels to get demoted when it comes time to get promoted. Cause you might be moving up too fast. Yeah, yeah. If you ever lost somebody of a different set, and the set wouldn't let you forget that it just don't go like that. Yeah, yeah. I know how it feels people to stop, turn around and stand, signify a little bit, and low rate me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't mind. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our interns are Lindsay Pavlis and Tom Pike. Our thanks to Bill O'Neill at WNYC for engineering our interview with Vijay Iyer and Paul Ruest at Argo Studios for engineering the New York side of our Dave Hill interview. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.